And uh, before we turn to God's Word together, uh, please join uh, with me in seeking God's face in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word stands, it endures forever. And Lord, we know that you have been so good to your people. We have such good news before us in your word of the grace of God, of undeserved and unmerited favor, that a love displayed at such cost at Calvary Hill a way of salvation, a way back to you, all by your gracious hand. Lord, as we, we come to Joshua 2, Lord, how we plead with you that you would remind us of your grace, even as your people were so prone to think about duty and merit and earning favor. Lord, remind us of the nature of the gospel. Remind us of yourself and your son. And we pray this not for ourselves, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Let me uh, begin with actually what is perhaps one of the more, if not the most solemn of truths. As Christians, we know, don't we, that one day God will pour out his anger. One day God will pour out his righteous indignation upon all people who are unbelieving. He will pour out his wrath upon all who are found outside of Jesus Christ. The most solemn, the most solemn of truth. There's a day coming when Scripture makes abundantly clear a day coming when God will judge the earth. It is, as you've just witnessed, <laughs> something that we struggle sometimes even to speak about and to, to verbalize. It is something that, truth be told, very often we sideline as we work out our faith and sideline in the life of our church. But we know because of the testimony of Scripture, because of the nature of God's perfection, we know that there has to be a day of judgment, but a day of justice, a day of fairness, a day of righteousness ahead of us on the horizon. Now, when you think about it, it is absolutely amazing to consider the lengths (laughs) that that God has gone to in order to warn people, to warn people about that that day of wrath. Isn't it incredible to consider uh, how he has done that in his word? So what would you have in scripture? So you have predictions of that coming day of judgment, don't you? In the Old Testament, in the prophets, don't you? You also have very, very explicit warnings about a a day of wrath in the New Testament. You could probably name some, fire some back at me, couldn't you? The Apostle Paul speaks about the coming wrath of God, or Luke 
makes clear that there is a day set in God's calendar. A day, what's that, Acts 17? A day uh, when God will, a day set that God will judge the earth by the man that he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do, do you see? We have got predictions of this judgment for humanity, explicit warnings for humanity, but there's something else, is there not? Because in the Old Testament, what we also have are pictures of that coming judgment, don't we? We have foreshadows or types of judgment that reveal something about what it will be like and what God will do. Where does your mind go when I talk about those Old Testament types of judgment? Probably, most notably, the flood in the book of Genesis. Well, as we try and get our minds this morning back into the book of Joshua. I think you all know what lies ahead of us in this book. You can just flick over the page and you'll see that just in the, uh, uh, I don't know, couple of weeks perhaps, we'll hit that very, very famous section where the walls of Jericho, what happens to them? They come crumbling down, but think about it. Another foreshadow, another picture of the coming judgment, the destruction of Jericho, something that points us, foreshadows the the pouring out of God's wrath, the destruction of sin and God's enemies. That's just ahead of us. Well, before we get to that chapter, chapter 5. Isn't it, don't you think, very interesting to see what we have before us today? So today in the story of Rahab, now you'll have to be patient with me and forgive me here and be very careful that you hear what I say. What we have in chapter 2, you could say, is an unnecessary a section of scripture. That's not heresy. Maybe you see what I mean. It's a section of scripture today that if it were removed, would not disrupt the flow of the storyline of the book of Joshua too, too much. But I wonder if you see what God is doing. In Joshua chapter 2, before we get to chapter 5, God is showing us, revealing to humanity just how a person can avoid that coming wrath. Isn't that what we have before us in chapter 2 in the story of Rahab? God revealing to us how a person can be delivered from that occasion when God acts to pour out his righteous indignation, deserved wrath on our sin. So with a sense of expectation and awe before God and with prayer, Can I ask you uh, to please make sure that you have this portion of Scripture open in front of you for the young ones, if the parents can make sure that the the children can see uh, the portion of Scripture, Joshua chapter 2. And let's uh, consider, first of all, an unlikely convert. That's what we see, isn't it? An unlikely convert in Joshua chapter 2. Okay, now, um, we were not in Joshua last week. 
Where are we? We were elsewhere at the communion services. But I am hoping that you can remember uh, what's uh, going on in this book. I'm sure you can. So the people of Israel, where are they? They're, they're camped on the east side of the Jordan, aren't they? And they're just about to cross over and to conquer the Canaanites, conquer the land. Before they do that, you see the information, don't you? What Joshua does is he sends in a couple of spies. They've got to scope out not just the land, but in particular, specifically, they've got to scope out the city of Jericho, don't they? And as they do that, as these spies come in to Jericho, they encounter this woman who amazingly, I think, by the hand of God, she hides the spies when these, the king of Jericho and his men, they come to track them down. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Now, allow me to moan for a minute. Permit me to complain just for a second or, or two. I think too often, maybe you agree with us, maybe you don't. I think too often people treat Joshua chapter 2 in the same way that uh, people very often shop in Harrods, okay? People treat this section in the way that people often shop in Harrods. So most of you maybe have been to London. Uh, Some of you might even have been to Harrods. So if you have, maybe you know what happens. If you've never been to Harrods, maybe some of the younger people have never been to Harrods, Harrods is full of cool stuff. Harrods is full of priceless works of art and cutting-edge furniture. But what do people do? People go into Harrods and they ignore all of this cool stuff and they fixate on getting a Harrods carrier bag. That's what it's about, isn't it? There are half a million pounds worth of priceless jewellery that you could look at. There's unique music memorabilia. No, 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 no. Ignore the riches. I've got to get myself a Harris plastic bag. Well, if you have been in churches for any length of time, you probably know that that is what people do here, (laughs) isn't it? When it comes to Joshua chapter 2, what people do, they ignore all of the riches of the story and all the invaluable, precious stuff. And what do they do? They fixate all of their attention on one thing. What do they fixate on? Not a carrier bag, but the supposed lie that Rahab tells. Do you notice it? Like So Rahab hides these spies and the king of Jericho's men, they come sort of a knocking on the door. Rahab says, no, 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 I don't have the spies, they're over there. And everybody obsesses about whether this is a legitimate thing for her to do. It's an ethical question. Should she have, is this a lie? Is it not a lie? Should she have done this? Is it excusable in a time of war and so forth? Well, this is what I'm going to say to you about the lie. Nothing. Nothing about the lie. Let me tell you why. It quite simply is not the concern of Scripture here. I mean, the the author gives so little time or attention to it. Instead, rather than focusing on this lie, this ethical question, do you know what we're supposed to do? You and I are supposed to focus on Rahab. We're supposed to focus on how unlikely it seems that she could possibly be a convert to, to God. 
I wonder um, what you think when I say that to you. Perhaps you think, yeah, that is too obvious a thing to say, that Rahab is an unlikely convert. Perhaps you think that's too obvious a thing to say. What I actually want you to appreciate is how God structures this section in order to focus your attention on that reality. Now, you think about it, because we're not coming to Joshua 2 out of the blue. We're coming to it as part of a sermon series. So you think about what we've got. We've had Joshua 1, Joshua 2. You notice, do you, that, that in each chapter, there is one character held up before our eyes. You've noticed that. Surely you have. Chapter 1, you've got all the attention on Joshua. Chapter 2, all the attention on, on Rahab. Now, what we are supposed to do is we're supposed to compare and contrast those two characters in order to see just how unlikely Rahab is as a convert. So do that with me. Who do we have? Joshua, a man. Rahab held up this woman. Not an insignificant thing in the ancient world, I'm sure you understand. Think about with me their roles. Come on, even the young people. Who's Joshua? He's a mighty warrior, leader, isn't he? And who is Rahab? What does she do? She is a a prostitute. She's a harlot already to us. As incredibly unlikely as an example of faith in a sense, isn't it? But we're not finished because dig into it a little more. Who is Joshua? He is an Israelite of Israelites, isn't he? Time and again, he is the son of none. And I ask you, friends, who is Rahab? What would you say to me? You might say, oh, she is a Gentile. No, no, more than that. What is she? She is an Amorite. She is a Canaanite. She is an enemy of God. Do do you see it? We're supposed to be amazed. We're supposed to see how unlikely this woman is. As somebody who would come into the covenant and follow God. This is a Canaanite prostitute. Let me remind you though, this is a Canaanite prostitute who goes on to be held up in the New Testament in the book of James and in the book of Hebrews as an example of faith. This is a Canaanite prostitute, we say. Yet... She will go on to figure in the genealogy of our Lord himself. This is an unlikely convert, but a convert nonetheless. Now, you and I this morning, as we come to apply this portion of Scripture, believe me when I tell you there's a lot of avenues and roads we, we could go down in application. I'm sure you see that. Let me just mention very briefly two. First of all, a, a theological root that we should tread a path that we should go down. See, I I don't suppose there's any way around this that the book of Joshua poses us as Christians a bit of a problem in a sense, doesn't it? If you think about the story of Joshua, poses us a bit of an ethical dilemma. Think about what we are going to discover and what is just about to happen in this book. It blows your mind when you think about it. The people of Israel, now is this not contentious? Wait for it. The people of Israel are just about to, by force, dispossess another people group of their land. Does that sound contentious? Think about all that's happening in the Middle East and how the media is dealing with us. 
sound a little bit contentious. The people of Israel going to go into Canaan by violence, by force, dispossess the people. The, the land sounds problematic for us. Well, we will only understand this if we bear a couple of things in mind. First of all, who those people are. Who are they? The Canaanites, the Amorites? Yes. They are a people for hundreds of years before this have made clear their rejection of God. They've made clear their hatred of God. This is a people who have been clear with their sin, their detestable practices. Do you understand what is about to happen? This book is not a squabble over territory. This is not a battle over dust and earth. This book is going to show us an act of divine judgment over wickedness. That is what this is about. God acting in divine judgment over sin. We must bear that in mind. But the second thing we must bear in mind is Rahab herself. Because surely everyone in the room, all of us, and you online at home, surely you see why God is inserting this glorious story for us here. Why is he doing it? God is reminding us that the Canaanites need not have been destroyed. He's showing us here that the Canaanites need not have faced God's anger. It's if they'd only done what one of their number had done, if they had only done what Rahab did, if they only repented and believed in God, then this destruction could be avoided. Isn't there a theological lesson here? But then I say two, so, second, there's also a practical lesson as well. I do wonder if you'll agree with this. If, if you don't agree, I don't suppose it is uh, a terrible thing. But I think generally speaking, it's perhaps the case that the church in Scotland, perhaps even right across the United Kingdom, uh, is largely a middle-class affair. Is that fair? Is that a right thing to say? I think it is. Of course, you could cite a hundred exceptions to that rule. But generally speaking, from a bird's eye view of the church in the United Kingdom, largely a middle class thing. Now, now, don't get me wrong for a second, please, I beg you. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being middle class. I mean, we can't change what we're born into or what comes with a career and all that. But I do think it's important that we therefore bear in mind this story. Do you see what's happening here? Here we have in a sense, the lowest of the low. We have a prostitute. And in this story, she is warmly embraced by the covenant community of God. So you see the question that we have to ask? We don't just ask, could that happen at St. Peter's? We actually have to ask, would that happen just now at St. Peter's? Because what I find fascinating about this chapter of Scripture is verse 1. Now, if you look at verse 1, you'll notice for the very first time, strange by its absence, for the first time, the place name of the camp is mentioned. Do you see it, Shatim? The place name for the first time is mentioned. Now, does that ring any bells with anyone? Do we get why that's there, perhaps? Shatim? That, in Numbers 25, was the place, and I was going to say where Israel rebelled against God. Let me rephrase it. Shittim was the place where the men of Israel whored themselves out with Moabite women. Do you see why it's there? Is that mentioned there not a, 
a subtle warning to the reader, a subtle warning to Israel, but also to us not to be too sniffy about Rahab, not to be too sniffy about the unlikely. And why not? Because such is your sin, friend, such is my sin, we are no better than she was, right? Such is our sin, we are no better than anyone else. So we see an unlikely convert. The second thing we must notice here is an unlikely confession, an unlikely confession. Um, were you at church last Sunday evening? I'm looking around and I think I can recognize uh, some of you from last Sunday evening, even with the masks on. Um, if you weren't, perhaps you, maybe you tuned in. Uh, last Sunday night, um, I, uh, people's eyes glazed over uh, because I mentioned a technical term. When I, when I said people's eyes uh, glazed over, I, I didn't want sort of nods from the congregation at that point. But I did mention uh, last week uh, uh, a technical term, and it was the term a chiasm. Do we, do we remember? I won't go into it for a huge detail, but do you remember what it was? It's a device that the, the Holy Spirit uses. That should encourage us to pay attention to it. Um, so it's when a section of Scripture works from the outer edges, from the beginning and the end, and it actually works in the way, in pairs towards the center. Is everyone with that? A chias, a chiastic structure. So from the outside, in the way, in pairs. Just for the, for the younger people, the rest can excuse me for a second, because I want you to remember this. So I'll give you a way of remembering it. A chiasm is, ready? A cheeseburger, Okay. Because you all love cheeseburgers, right? Is that fair? Yes, you do. Now, it's the same thing. Do you see it? From working from the outer edges and pairs in the way. Come on, your cheeseburger. You've got the bun, right, on either side. That's a pair. Then what else would you have? Maybe the sauces as you go in. What, we're going to have mayonnaise and relish. Then any good cheeseburger is going to have at least two slices of cheese. And then what you've got in the middle? You've got the meat, you've got the, the actual burger in the middle. Did you see? So a chiastic structure. Now, what I should maybe have said last Sunday night is why a biblical author would, would structure a section of Scripture in that manner. Do, do you see why this would happen? The, the section works from the outside in the way in a series of pairs in order to draw the reader's attention to the center of the text that the writer goes to all this effort and structuring so that we will pay attention to the central feature of that portion of scripture. Now, is this just hot air? No. Perhaps you've already noticed, have you, that Joshua chapter 2 is structured in such a manner? Now think about it. What do you have at the very beginning and the end? You have mentioned, specific mention of Joshua. People go out from him. People come to him. Then you move in a little bit. And the next pair is what? Spies. You know, they, they, they go out, they come back. Then you move in. What's the next pair, everybody? It's the theme of protection, isn't it? The spies are protected. Then at the end, the Rahab is protected. Now, what's happening? What's happening? All of this has been structured in order to draw your attention to one central feature of this text. One short section in the middle of the text that the Holy Spirit 
wants the reader to pay attention to. So I would ask you, well, what is that central section? Well, what's happening in the story? Come on, are we following the story? Do we see what's happened where we are in the story? The king of Jericho's men. Imagine that. They come knocking at the door. Imagine that. And then Rahab has sent them away. Now, listen to me carefully, please. The men go, but the text makes abundantly clear that the gate draws your attention to the fact that the gate is closed behind the men. So you are supposed to, I am supposed to scratch our heads and think, well, how are they going to get out? Do you see the dilemma? How are these men going to get out? Maybe you can imagine what happens next. Just consider it. Rahab then goes up the stairs to the roof where the spies are hiding. And, and can we imagine it? It's dark. It's at nighttime in Jericho. Can you imagine how petrified those three people are? The spies and, and Rahab? And, and, and it's right there, right at that moment, as she speaks to them, that we hit the central feature of this text. Maybe in hushed tones, Rahab makes, right in the heart of the section, the most glorious confession of the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. And it's remarkable. And I, I'm sure that the women, from the girls onwards, will very much appreciate this because what you've got in the central section of this confession is the, one of the longest recorded speeches by a woman anywhere in the ancient world. So this beautiful confession, smack bang in the center, and I want to ask three questions of it. So please follow these. First of all, how did Rahab even discover the greatness of God? Would you do this with me, friends? Would you look at verse 10? Show it to the young folk too as well, please. Verse 10. How did, I mean, she's, a, she's in Canaan, she's in Jericho. How did she even know about the splendor of God? Do you see? We're told that news of God's actions in the, in the Exodus have, had reached Canaan. Do you see some people had heard about God's redemptive work? Maybe we can picture what that would have been like. You know, somebody hears about God's work in the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of the Egyptians. They tell somebody else and it spreads like wildflower. Wild, whatever it is. You know what I'm trying to say. Before long, it's the talk of the town and somebody knocks on Rahab's door and tells her of God. Second question, who did Rahab understand God to be? Would you look with me at verse 11? Now, I ask you, as you look there, do you remember what is the, what's known as the Song of the Sea? The Song of the Sea. That's in Exodus chapter 15. It's a glorious prophecy and it predicts that when the people of Israel would come into the land, that God's enemies would simply melt away. They would simply fall and fade away. And look what Rahab says in verse 11. She actually understands that's happening here. She understands something of the nature of the power of God, that God is causing her people simply to wilt. And that's marvelous, but read on. Look at the end of verse 11. She understands something of the uniqueness of God. Do you see that phrase there, friends? 
The Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth. Do you see it? The Lord your God is God. That's almost a technical way of declaring that God is the only God. That he is the God of supremacy. The one true and living God. Isn't it remarkable? Who is this? This is a harlot. This is a woman of the night. This is a Canaan, perhaps a Canaanite shrine prostitute. But she's declaring the power of God and the purposes of God, the majesty of God, the mystery of God. What a central section of Scripture we have here. Isn't that amazing? Don't you see now in this confession why the author, why the Holy Spirit goes to such lengths to structure it, to draw your attention to Rahab's confession of the one true and great God. I said, I said, three questions. For the third one, I want to speak to you if you're not a Christian in the room. Um, that might be any number of people. It might be some of the younger folk in the room and perhaps have not place their faith or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be some of those in the room are, are not so young, and it could be that you're visiting, but it could be that you've been attending St. Peter's for a very, very long time, and yet you have failed still to bow before Jesus Christ. But who else might it be? It might also be the people who are joining online. We do not know Who's doing that? It might be some people who are tuning in on the live feed at this very moment. It might be people because it goes up on YouTube, right? It might be people weeks from now, months from now, years from now, who just happen to stumble upon this message. People who are not born again. Friend, if that is you, if that covers you, somebody who is not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, Surely you understand, even as somebody who is not a Christian, that there is a world of difference between knowing things about God and putting your faith in God. You understand that, even if you're not a believer, not a Christian. You understand, just, I said a world of difference. I mean an eternity of difference. An eternity of difference between believing in the existence of God and looking at God in, in, in wonder, but in faith. Well, in light of that, it's time for the third question. Because the third question is this. What did Rahab do with the knowledge she has of God? Have a look at verse 12. As you look there, I want you to appreciate. She cries out and cries out for deliverance. Do you see what she does? She speaks to these spies and she enters into what is a very formal covenant agreement with the spies. Do you see that's an agreement? She will help them escape in return for acceptance and deliverance. She helps them escape, but only if she can leave being a Canaanite, become part of the people of Israel. You see it, don't you? Rahab is not content to know about God. She's not content to know that God stands supreme. No, Rahab looks to him and she seeks refuge in the Lord Most High. And yes, there is a message in that for you if you're a Christian. We're all saying this is a marvelous testimony, aren't we? Yet how did she find out about God's redemptive work? 
because somebody somewhere told her and spoke to her of what God has done. Is that not motivation for our evangelism? Do we not need to tell people of God's great redemptive work that this might occur again by his grace? A message here for the Christian, but oh, so much more so for that person in here or at home who is not trusting in Jesus. I do wonder, friend, I wonder, if you are thinking that this morning you are too unlikely a convert yourself. I wonder if that's where you are. As you look at your life, you look at your life and you think, oh, wait a minute, I am in a sense an enemy of God. You look at your life and you think, hang on a second, my sexual history, my sexual practices, my immorality, my sin, my family, my lineage, my life, all of it, it it renders me outside of possible salvation. Is that what you're thinking? Look at Rahab and see that it's absolutely not the case. What do you see when you look at this woman? You see that there is far more grace in God, far, far more love and forgiveness and mercy in God than there is iniquity, immorality in you and in your life, more grace in God. Indeed, what do you see when you look at Rahab? What do you see? You see that that love of God, that grace of God, that forgiveness is actually available today to you if you will only do as she does there, if you will only seek refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see an unlikely convert, don't we? We see an unlikely but beautiful confession. And then the third and the last thing, we see an unlikely conclusion, very unlikely conclusion. If you're following the the, the story and the chapter through with me, um, you probably agree that there must have been at this point, I think anyway, a great sense of relief. Don't you agree? Between all of these three people, they've come to an agreement. You know, uh, the spies will be helped to escape. Rehab will be delivered. You can see them. They're all, you know, they're all delighted. They're all, in a sense, relieved. But notice it. Just as these two men are about to be lowered down. What is it? It's a rope, isn't it? And it's from the window, from the house in the city wall. Just before that happens, do you, do you see that the spies add a couple of stipulations? I'm sure you noticed that in the reading. They add a couple of stipulations to this covenant agreement. Now, I would ask you to look at them. Look at verse 17, please, friends. Verse 17, see when you find it there. And what are the two stipulations? So, at first... Yeah, it's the famous one, isn't it? Rehab has to tie a scarlet cord to her window. That's a sign. We've got that. We knew that, didn't we? What's the second stipulation? She has to gather in the house, gather with her family in the house. Now, we all appreciate, do we? That house is the place of refuge. We all understand, do we, that that's the emphasis of the text on that house. Like it's the message from the spies. Look, if you, if you go out of this house, okay, if you, if you even take a step out of this house when the, the judgment comes, that's going to spell disaster for you and your family. Everyone's with me, right? That house, that's the place of refuge. That is the place of safety. Now, what we could do here just as we end, we could do what you're expecting me to do, what you're expecting us to do. What we could do is we could focus on this 
cord. Scarlet cord. Because most likely we know the history of interpretation here, do we? We know that there's this idea going right back to some in the early church, right the way back to Clement, Alexandria, that look at this cord and love to speculate about the significance of the color the cord, oh, it's scarlet. It's got to mean something scarlet. And there's loads of specula- speculation. And you might expect that we would linger there for a while. Well, no, I think personally way too much is made of the color of the cord. Instead, what I would ask you to do as we close the sermon is instead focus where the text focuses us. And I'd ask you to consider and to think about the house. The house. The house. Because you good people, you know your Bible. You're going to really appreciate that. It's the minister, the new minister of St. Peter's. You people, you know your scriptures, right? And so I can ask you to think like a Hebrew for a moment in Joshua chapter 2. Come on, what's the history here? What is the history for these spies? You've got Egypt. We all know about that. We all know the misery of Egypt. What else? The Exodus. Think about it. Come on with me. Think about the details of the Exodus. Does this not in Joshua 2 seem familiar? Does it not ring bells? Think about it. Where else in the history of Israel did you have this judgment looming? This judgment coming. It's coming upon the land. But if the people did what? The people only marked their houses. (laughs) They only put something in the opening of their houses. They would be spared. If they stayed in their houses, they would be safe. Is this not similar to the very Passover itself? And if you see that, do you not also see what Joshua 2 is doing? This portion of Scripture, like the Passover, is pointing you, Christian friend, ahead from here to the great place of security that comes through God's final redemptive work. Surely you recognize it. Like the Passover, you are being thrown, pointed forward to that great shelter, that great eternal security that comes. But how? Only through the person and only through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That security won there at Calvary. And yes, there is. In that, such an important message if you're not a Christian. Oh, there is. How I implore you to heed the messages, the warnings of judgment and wrath if you're not a Christian. More than that, I appeal to you to do as Hebrews chapter 6 tells you to do. Hebrews 6 says, flee to Christ for refuge. Fred, if you're not a Christian, hear here this morning that it's only Jesus Christ that can rescue you from that wrath that is ahead. Yes, there's a message for the Christian. But what did I call the third point? An unlikely conclusion. So instead of the unconverted, please let me speak to you if you're a Christian this morning, if you're born again in Jesus Christ. Is that you? You're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus? Then I would simply ask you, do you not see yourself In Joshua chapter 2, you think about your spiritual experience. Do you not see in this chapter what God has done for you? Do you look at Rahab? What were you? 
But previously, you were an enemy of God, weren't you, friends? Weren't you? Animosity, enmity with God. And your life, a life that was immoral but captured in immorality and sin. And yes, we could linger on the fact that by God's grace, you this morning in here can do what Rahab did. You can, you can profess and confess the greatness and the majesty of God. Can't you as a Christian? We could linger there, but instead I want to ask you, I want to ask you, where are you spiritually today? By the grace of the gospel, where are you? You see it, don't you? Yes, there's a judgment coming. It's real. We mustn't ignore it. But Christ has worked for you. And Christ Jesus has turned all of God's anger at your sin upon himself. He's propitiated God's wrath away from you and on himself. And because of that, where are you today, spiritually speaking? You're in the house. You see it? You're in Christ Jesus today. You're safe. You are in him. You're in the house with the door locked behind you. It's bolted behind you because Christ Jesus and what he has done at Calvary, you are today safe. You are secure forever and ever and ever. And because of that, surely this morning, our hearts are moved in praise and wonder, aren't they? Our hearts moved in gratitude to God. Christ Jesus on that cross, he faced your judgment. He dealt with your punishment. He drank to the dregs that cup of God's wrath that you should have faced. And because of that, Christian friend, what are we today? We are in Christ, safe as houses. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we wonder at your goodness uh, to Rahab. We thank you that this is a, a, a picture for us, but a truth that your salvation was never simply defined in uh, ethnic bounds. We thank you that even this Canaanite, this Amorite prostitute was welcomed in by grace to the covenant community. We thank you that she escaped by your goodness the wrath that was to come in Jericho. But Lord, all the more, the church of Jesus Christ, we look to you and wonder today that you have done the same for us. Lord God, that you have saved us, you have delivered us from the punishment that is due our immorality and our sin, and you've done it by, by pouring out that judgment, pouring out that punishment upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Lord, how we praise you for the goodness of the gospel. We thank you for our forgiveness, our rescue. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.